0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 16 and verses 29 through chapter 17 verse 6. Uh, I sent the wrong sermon info out. It's not Ty's fault. <laughs> this time I actually uh, for some reason said I was only going to be preaching on one verse. Just as a note, whenever it says I'm only preaching on one verse, it's always a typo. (laughs) It's never going to happen, so I'm sorry. Um, As you know, we've been going through the history of the kings of the southern and northern kingdoms. The northern kingdom referred to Israel uh, as Israel. The southern kingdom referred to as Judah. And unfortunately now, as we turn our attention to the northern kingdom, we're going to see yet another evil king. They seem to be in a competition to see who can be the most evil Uh, fathers being exceeded by their sons in this case Ahab exceeding the evil of his father Omri and uh, unfortunately this is bringing the nation closer and closer to judgment and destruction even as politically and perhaps economically militarily they are doing well spiritually it is a disaster and only getting worse but the Lord is not going to leave them And he doesn't. This is very important. As we see the introduction of the immensely important uh, person of Elijah into uh, the scenario here, one of the things we need to remember is that God never leaves his people without a witness. He always will send his prophets, his messengers, to remind them of the truth. In every age he has done this. Now, sometimes those messengers have been received rather uh, poorly by the people they were sent to, Uh, Elijah is no exception to that. The government wanted to kill him, but nonetheless, he spoke the word of the Lord and he did so boldly. And there's so many different things we can learn from Elijah and his example and in the way that he points us to the fearless example of Christ, the son of God who would come after all of those messengers and who would be dealt with most cruelly of all. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word and let's read, Rather, let's pray before we read. Oh, Sovereign Lord, I'm a man with feet of clay. I cannot hope to uh, open up your word and explain it to your people unless you have opened it up to me first. I pray you would help me to divide it aright. And I pray, Lord, that I would act as your messenger. May I, I decrease, may Christ increase. May we, as we look at these words, remember they were not merely written for the people who were in the ancient Near East. They were written for us as well, and indeed for every generation of Christians, all of your people in every age. Help us then to glean that which we should from them, and help us, O Lord, to apply these things in our own lives. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal, And worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days Hael of Bethlehem built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son Sigub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows from the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the uh, great purposes, obviously, of First Kings, and I hope you've already gleaned this, is to remind God's people, and that would include you and I, obviously, I hope, uh, that he is in control and that everything that he prophesies, everything that he promises will come to pass. What does that mean? It means you can trust God completely with your very life. More than that, you can trust God with your eternity, he will not go back on anything that he has said. There is, of course, a sharp edge to that as well. If he prophesies doom, if we continue in an evil way, it will surely come. And as we read First Kings, we will find that is the case. Therefore, brothers and sisters, our calling is to trust him and to obey him, to put our confidence in him and to listen to his voice, to have faith in what he says and to put, of course, our ultimate confidence in the one whom he sent. At this point, obviously, in 1 Kings, the seed of the nations, the blessing was yet to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it was absolutely sure, even at this point, that he would. That the son of David, great David's greater son, would in time come. And so the people could trust that. But the Lord was proving this to them day by day, showing them that everything that he had said would come to pass, did come to pass. that means, luckily enough, or luckily in the Calvinistic sense, providentially, that means that regardless of who is in charge of the nation, whether it be this nation or the nation of Israel in Elijah's time, or where the culture is going or what they believe, that the Lord will bring all things right. This section of First Kings reminds us of that. It does not matter what worldly powers do, how they rage against God, how the culture turns to philosophies, embraces uh, evil. It does not matter because we know that the Lord is still in charge. His grasp of the universe has not been broken by the evil or the foolishness of men. Now as things open up in chapter uh, 16 at the point where we started in verse 29, we see the name of Asa and we're reminded that the southern kingdom is still flourishing under a good king, a descendant of David. Asa has at this point been on the throne for 38 years. Now what was it that made Asa good? Another reminder for us. Was it That like Omri, the father of Ahab, that he was a great builder, a a great general, an alliance maker, a man who brought trade into his nation. Well, uh, he was a good king, certainly in terms of the fact that he did not misrule his people, but that was not what made him good. If you will turn back in your Bibles just a little while to, uh, or a few pages I should say, to 1 Kings 15.11. There we read, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. Also, he removed Maaka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. What made Asa good, brothers and sisters, was his faith in in the Lord, his confidence in him, his trust in him, and his willingness to do his will even when it was hard. It is not an easy thing to turn against one of your relatives and to remove them from a position of power and honor, but he was willing to do that. He was willing also to go against the popular spreading religion of the peoples as they had embraced falsehoods and false gods. The uh, Asherah image, he cuts down and he burns it to show that it is nothing. He was willing to do these things. It was that faith and that confidence that made him a good king, a worthy ruler. The new king in the north, however, Ahab the son of Omri, seems hell-bent on being exactly the opposite of Asa in every regard. He seems set to do nothing that was right in the eyes of the Lord. He will set up Asherah poles. Uh, These were obscene phallic images that were uh, used in the, uh, the, the worship of Asherah. He's going to also build temples to her consort, the false god Baal, and do more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of the previous kings. He goes well beyond, we read, the false worship of Yahweh that Jeroboam had created. You remember he had made these two calves, rather like Aaron had made the calves at Sinai. They, they thought they were worshiping the Lord. They created their own seasons. They created their own priests. They went against all of the Lord's instructions in worship, but they still said, we're worshiping Yahweh. But he went well beyond that, and he thought it was a trivial matter. What Jeroboam was doing was an abomination in setting up those false images, and the false worship of God is always an abomination, but to him it was as nothing, Instead of worshiping the true God the wrong way, what we are going to do now is start worshiping false gods. And so he begins to actively establish the worship of Baal and Asherah as the main worship in the northern kingdom. And that happens largely because of the influence of Jezebel, Ahab's queen. Now, Israelites, and indeed the people of God, are not supposed to be unequally yoked. I hope this isn't news to any of you. You are not supposed to marry unbelievers. It is never the right choice. It is never a good choice. And in Ahab's case, it was a terrible, terrible choice. Uh, Solomon, unfortunately, had exploded that prohibition amongst the kings. After him, unfortunately, we're going to see more and more unbelieving wives brought in. He married thousands of women, and many of them were believers in false gods. But Ahab marries uh, this very strong-willed daughter of Ethbal, probably at the instigation of his father, Omri. So he marries Ethbal, uh, king of the Sidonians' daughter. And now Ethbal was a Phoenician king, a Sidonian king. The Phoenicians were great seafaring people. uh, And incidentally, Ethbal means Baal is alive. That's a rather ironic name for a king. Baal is alive. Because first kings will show And in a wonderful, wonderful conflict that occurs on Mount Carmel, that only Yahweh, only Jehovah, is the living God, not Baal. There is only one God who answers in all of 1 Kings, and indeed in all of the universe, and that is the Lord God Almighty. The king of Tyre, though, uh, had been obviously eager to establish this alliance with Omri, who was a very powerful king in his time. And so he offers his daughter, and Omri snaps her up for his son. Uh, incidentally, Ethbal, uh, he was also the grandfather of Dido, the founder of, let's see how, how you did in your classic, uh, uh, classical education. What city did Dido found? Very good. <laughs> I'm so glad we have the classical educator here at Andy uh, Dido was the founder of Carthage. The Phoenicians founded their cities far and wide throughout the Mediterranean. Uh, Ethbal had been the priest of Ashtaroth or Astarte, but he seized the kingdom by an act of murder. He murdered Philetes, king of Tyre. Uh, if you have ever seen the old movie, The Mummy, You could think of him as something of an Imhotep character who actually manages to pull off his coup and kill the king and then uh, establish his own line. So he becomes a false priest king of that kingdom. In that sense, he is an antichrist character. As Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, so Ethbal was the false priest king of his own kingdom. Jezebel, was his wicked daughter. And on her marriage with Ahab, she doesn't rest till she tries to get all of the native worship of the Samaritans. False as it is, she wants it expunged and replaced with the worship of Baal and Asherah. It was her desire to wipe out any reminders of Yahweh worship within the kingdom. So the author of 1 Kings starts out by listing off, in summary fashion, the great sins of Ahab. And then he's going to go on, obviously, in the narrative to expand on these awful things he did. Uh, the sins that were listed in full include, obviously, marrying this baal daughter of a Baal-worshipping king, worshipping Baal himself and bowing down to him, building a temple for Baal in Samaria, Erecting in the temple an image of the goddess Asherah and then ignoring all the laws and warnings of Yahweh. Jezebel is as devoted to Baal worship as Queen Mary was to Roman Catholicism. At the time of the Counter-Reformation, you remember Henry VIII had a, a weak son, Edward VI, who only lived until he was 16 years old. This is in the 16th century. But Edward VI, although he may have been very sickly, was a godly young man. And he attempted to reform the worship of the English kingdom and to bring in a true Protestant worship. Mary raged against it, and she attempted to reinstitute idolatry and papistry in the, uh, in the kingdom, And uh, only by the fact that she was taken away by a disease was that averted. Uh, Mary was willing to shed oceans of Protestant blood. And as we shall see, Jezebel is willing to shed oceans of Israelite, faithful Israelite blood. Her name, Jezebel, probably comes from a cultic cry. That is something that was yelled out in worship, uh, the worship of Baal, meaning, where is Baal? Why is he not here? Jezebel, uh, where is Baal? One commentator says, now had a secular historian been recording these events, the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel would likely have been applauded as a prudent political move. Both Phoenicia and Israel were being threatened by Syria, and the marriage gave Ahab a powerful military ally at a crucial time. It also allowed Ahab to regain the region around Mount Carmel, which the Phoenicians had held. But for his writing of the history, the author of Kings had a more focused purpose. Under divine inspiration, his purpose was to report the story from the standpoint of its spiritual and religious impact, which was appalling, and as he points out, ultimately fatal to the nation. That's something that you need to take to heart. The fact is, it is not going to be our ability to win wars, to expand our economy, uh, to subdue other nations, to assert our own will. That the Lord is going to be pleased with. As we have seen again and again in the book of First Kings. It is faithfulness to the Lord. He wants a humble people beneath him. Doing his will. And striving for that which is truly good. Rather than a proud people. Disobeying him. No matter how successful they may seem. In the world of nations. Now we have... The story of Ahab established, and then we have this kind of weird vignette in 33 and 34. Look at uh, 1633 and 34. That's the story of the building or the rebuilding of Jericho. You remember Jericho was destroyed when the people of Israel had entered into the land initially under Joshua, and after the walls had come down at the word of God, and after uh, the plunder... Unfortunately, had been taken by uh, one of the Israelites, and as a result, the people had been uh, judged by God. They had uh, been beaten initially by the people of AI, a tiny little nation. What happened was, Joshua cursed Jericho. It was a, it was a city under a curse, and he had said uh, in Joshua 626, "Cursed be the man." Before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho, he shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest, he shall set up his gates. Now, Ahab did not care about the curse of Joshua. What he cared about was the fact that Jericho was a strategic location. It, uh, it guarded one of the main fords of the Jordan and he wanted a fortress there. To stop other nations from invading. So he apparently commissioned Hiel to build or rebuild the city as a fortress, but the curse of Joshua took effect, and he loses two sons in the process. Understand this again is reminding us that when the Lord says it will happen, it will happen. And so they go against his word, and unfortunately, they suffer loss, even though they get a fortress at the end of the day. This is also going to be something that's just not, it's not just a theme within kings, but a theme within the entire Bible because so often people do this. They say, I want the world and I'm willing to sacrifice everything else in order to get it. I want a fortress. I'll even sacrifice my children in order to obtain it. Is this a good trade, brothers and sisters? Well, clearly not. What is more worth? than the soul and body of a living child. And yet as a people, haven't we forgotten that as well? How often do we sacrifice our children, saying, well, I need to complete my education, I'm pregnant, therefore I must sacrifice this child in order to build the foundation of my MBA, or whatever degree we're going for at that moment in time. Or perhaps we don't put them to death, But we simply push them into the background. I have seen, unfortunately, in over 20 years now, of preaching in a military community, many a man has sacrificed his children on the altar of his career, spending little or no time with them and putting all of his effort into building up the row of what they used to call in the British Army, uh, what was it, uh, fruit salad on his chest. Brothers and sisters, this is not a good trade either. It should be the case that our family, well, God first, then our spouse, and then our children in that order. And after that, certainly our career should be of great importance to us, but not so great that we would lose them in the process. So the foundation is laid, the children die, and this is another indication God is telling us through this seemingly small event, these are a people who are willing to do evil, that good may come of it, and no good will come of it. Now, verse 1, though, of chapter 17, introduces us to Elijah. Elijah's name is a combination of two names for God, Elohim and Yahweh, and it means literally, Jehovah is God, or Yahweh is God. Elijah uh, has been called the most important leader of the worship of the living God since Moses and Samuel, and that's probably true. Uh, according to verse one, he was born in Tishbe, which is an unidentified village somewhere, uh, probably in the vicinity of Gilead, which is in uh, southeastern, uh, the, the southeastern area of Galilee, Transjordan. Uh, Joy and I were actually in that. We I didn't realize it at the time. We were actually in that area when we were visiting uh, the Sea of Galilee as we were making our way up to Capernaum. Uh, We were only a few miles from where Tishbe probably was at the time, at the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. So uh, although uh, his successor, Elisha, will do more miracles than Elijah, Elijah is hands down easily the most important prophet of the Old Testament. And he is also incredibly important in the New Testament as well. You remember, God had promised in Malachi, the last book before we get to the New Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, before Matthew, he had promised, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then, of course, in the reign of Christ, when he is on earth, we, uh, we see in the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Luke 9.30, And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, Elijah personifies the prophets, Moses personifies the law. There we see the law and the prophets speaking to Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah himself, the promised one. Both of them on the Mount of Transfiguration pointing to the fact that both of them spoke of his coming, that these things would surely come to pass. But also, Elijah, in addition to his amazing importance, to the, uh, the coming of the Messiah as an example to us. James uses him as, as an example of righteous prayer. In James 5.17, we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. One of the things that we need to remember, therefore, is that Elijah was not a superhuman. He, did not ha- he wore a coat Uh, or a a cloak, we should say, of camel hair and a leather belt. But he did not wear a cape and fly through the air. He was not superhuman in any sense. He was like you and I. Now, he had a, a full measure of the Lord's spirit upon him. But at the same time, he had the same temptations, the same hungers, the same difficulties that you and I have. And we are going to see that he struggled with the same fear that you and I might struggle with. And so... Elijah, we read, suddenly appears at the beginning of chapter 17. He comes into the presence of Ahab in Samaria, and he says (laughs) straight out, there's going to be a terrible drought. It's not going to rain. Neither will the dew that normally wets the fields in the morning. That won't be there either. It's going to be bone dry until I say, this is the word of the Lord. And then he walks out. This must have been a... a, uh, A startling experience for Elijah, or not Elijah, for Ahab and Jezebel. He just delivers his message, and then the Lord tells him, you better go now. Because, you know, I'm pretty sure that perhaps at the time, even if they'd heard of him, Ahab and Jezebel might simply have dismissed him as a kook. Yeah, he comes in and says, it's not going to rain anymore till I say so. But then it does. It does stop raining. The drought begins. And so, of course, their desire is going to be to find this man and to get him one way or the other to make it rain again. Israel, in this, of course, is being reminded that God is in control. He is not silent. He is not forgotten. And his servants, the prophets, will deliver his messages and his warnings. One of the things also I want you to see here is Elijah says it's not going to rain. There's not going to be any moisture. Therefore, what's not going to grow? Crops. Okay, you, There was no irrigation at this point in time. And even if there was, they couldn't have possibly provided enough water for all the crops there. And that means eventually the animals are going to starve. And the people are going to starve. And there's going to be no corn. There's going to be no, nothing growing in the land. And so we see that the gods that they're worshiping, Baal, and Asherah, because of course these were fertility gods. They were supposed to be, it was in their corrupt worship. One of the reasons why they had the, uh, they incorporated sex into this worship was the idea that by their own actions they would encourage the gods to copulate and it would cause fertility upon the land. It would make it rain. But of course, what is God doing? He's showing these are no gods at all. They have no power to do this, they are utterly powerless just as the gods of Egypt were. You remember in the Exodus God progressively shows that Ra the sun god has no power by bringing darkness and so on. He he takes all of these false gods and he shows they can't do what you think they can do. I alone am in charge of all of these things and it should cause them shouldn't it to 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 rethink their worship but of course unfortunately with a hardened heart it never does. And isn't that sad? You you and I know people, we've met people, who are doing stuff over and over again, worshiping particular idols, engaging in various things that bring them hardship, that bring them sorrow, that bring them nothing but disaster. But they are so stubborn they won't turn from their course or even see what it's doing. We see that in our nation, don't we? Corporations, uh, uh, what's the saying? Go woke, go broke. And yet, what do they do? They do it again and again. They don't learn the lesson because they don't want to learn the lesson. The falsehood should be true. It should be the case that Baal and Asherah bring rain because they hate Yahweh. They hate the God who created them. We don't want to do what our parents tell us even though we're destroying ourselves. Why? Because we hate their commandments. How dare you? It's that rebellious spirit coming out again and again. And it does us no good, unfortunately. Now, uh, we're going to see, I I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, we're going to see how after Elijah said it's not going to rain again, it doesn't rain again, but the Lord says, okay, now you need to flee. So he sends him to the brook Cherith to, to hide there. And he sends ravens to feed him. Okay, ravens bringing meat and bread in the morning. Now, one of the things that's very humorous is uh, I read a bunch of commentators and they are falling all over themselves to try to come up with some other explanation for ravens. They're like, well, the word for raven was probably actually the word for a city that was nearby, and so it wasn't really ravens. It was the members of the... You see, the the word for raven is obrim in the Hebrew, and it was probably the obramites who were bringing him food from their city and so on, because they're like, you can't have something as supernatural as birds feeding a prophet occurring. You're like one thing I don't understand. He walks into the presence of the king and says, it's not going to rain. And this meteorological wonder that never normally happens suddenly comes to pass for years. And you're worried about birds. (laughs) I, I mean, come on, guys. This book is a book that shows the supernatural power of God over everything that happens. Ravens feeding people is as nothing compared to the Lord of glory rising from the dead on the third day. Let's face it. We are a people who believe that God can do whatever he wants in this universe. If he decides the sea's solid to walk on for him, it's solid. And he walks on it. And we say amen. There have been countless times in my life where I have seen things that should never have happened, that seemed impossible. My own conversion, for instance, if I wanted evidence of the supernatural working of God in turning stone to flesh, I only have to look at my own history. So ravens bringing, I'm sure there were uh, perhaps a lot of people in northern Israel who were very upset at how the ravens were snatching their bread as it was cooling on the window. Or, you know, they'd laid out the strips, just as they do still today, to dry in the sun of the meat. And I put down ten. There's five. Ah! Birds! Where are they going? They're taking all of this plunder to the prophet of the Lord. Remind yourself of this every morning. He cares for you. And he will provide for you. Now, I'm sure this was not the greatest food that, that you know, I have to admit, I'd rather not have my bread delivered by bird, but still he continued to eat. And because he was by the brook, he continued to drink. Even as the nation is beginning to suffer, the Lord loves his prophet, Elijah, and he provides for him. So I want to make some applications for us. I've already made quite a few, so I'll try to be uh, brief in this. Remember this. Elijah lived in evil days. We Live in evil days. Paul said, We live in this present evil age. We should expect evil things to happen. But that should not lead us to walk around, you know, beating our chests and saying, Woe is me, I live in evil days, and I am amongst the people who are evil, and oh, evil, evil. We should remember that no matter what, the Lord is still in charge of the universe. He is watching over us, His plans are coming to pass, and even in the evil that men do, His will is done. You want the greatest example ever of that? It comes to us in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, men seize the Lord of glory with their evil hands, they scourge Him, they nail Him to a cross, they put Him to death, and in so doing they bring about the redemption Of all God's people. The greatest evil is used by God. To bring about the greatest good. Remember that. It's true in your life as well. Romans 8.28. Go back to that verse again. And again and again. All things work for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. If you're God's child. Then even the things that hurt us. Will work for our good. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, It struck me the first time I heard it. I'll never get over it. We all say, thank you, Lord. When we're coming to an intersection, there's a car coming, and we didn't see it, or maybe they run the red, this is Fayetteville after all, you know, (laughs) orange means speed up. Uh, So they, they come through, and we jam on the brakes, and we stop just in time, and we say, that was God. He providentially saved me from that accident. Here's the harder lesson. When we go through and we are T-boned by that car and paralyzed as a result, that too is God. That's his providence. But there's a purpose in it. Many a saint has had their world shaken up, gone through a life-changing experience, lost a loved one, had a disease, and asked, how is this right? Why, Lord? But only at the end of their lives are they able to see how it was that God used that. Johnny Erickson Tada is another wonderful example. This is a young woman who dives into uh, the Chesapeake Bay when she's barely 17 years old, hits her head on a rock, her spinal cord is broken, and she's a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. But by that action, God laid the foundation for a ministry that has reached more people (laughs) than most people will ever dream of reaching in a ministry. She has had an enormously beneficial impact, particularly with the handicapped, able to show them how the Lord still loves them, how Christ is still with them, and how he is their redeemer, and that someday, yes, they will have new bodies, and all of their afflictions will be gone. So remember that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he lived in a time like ours with evil leaders, but that doesn't stop God from doing his will. And also, remember this Elijah was, even though he was living in an evil time, he was a prophetic witness, which means he spoke the word of the Lord even when it was incredibly unpopular. He spoke the word of the Lord even when it could get him killed. Far worse than fired. We read about this English teacher in our our Prayer for the Persecuted Church who can't teach in the United Kingdom anymore only because he loves the Lord and wouldn't speak untruths. We remember what's happening in our society, and I'm seeing more and more Christians being silenced out of fear. This is, uh, what do they call it, Pride Month? But it is fear month for so many Christians. Oh, please, let this get over with. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not forced to kind of bite my tongue every five minutes. Stop biting your tongues. Elijah didn't. What did Elijah do? He spoke the truth. What are we so afraid of? Is God not reigning in the, in the universe any longer? I, are all the morals that he told us are right and true and good suddenly wrong for a month in June? Should we... The children of the Lord be silent when we have a story to tell. When we are the ones who know how to be saved through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that following your heart is the worst thing you can possibly do. The heart is, is evil and desperately wicked. Don't follow the, the sinful inclinations of your heart. There's a meme going around. I, I reposted it. It said, uh, people justify their sins by saying, I was born this way and that's why Jesus says you must be born again. Let people know that. Evil, one of the lessons that you learn from 1 Kings is that evil does no one any good ultimately. It makes them warped and angry and it brings disaster and ultimately hell into their lives and existences. So tell them the truth. Let us say somebody came to you and they were suffering from a terminal disease. And there was only one cure for it, but it was tremendously painful to endure. Would you, because you were afraid of upsetting them and making them angry, not tell them about the cure? Well, I hope that wouldn't be the case. No matter how much they might rage against you and speak evil of you, if you loved that person, you would tell them, you need this. It's the only thing that can save you. It's a simple analogy, brothers and sisters, but that's where you are right now. You have the truth. You know the truth. You know the Lord. You know his will. Don't be afraid to share it with people. Come what may. Brothers and sisters, we, yes, we will endure a little persecution, but you're not going to have you know King Ahab and Queen Jezebel chasing you. You're not going to be afraid that you know, uh, at any moment they're going to batter down your doors and drag you off to a Chinese gulag. We don't live under that. Our brothers and sisters in China endure far more for preaching the truth than we ever will, probably, I hope, God willing. But let's be at least as courageous as they, for we serve the same God, don't we? We're geographically in a different area, but we're not in a different universe. Therefore, stand firm for the Lord and for his will. Let's go before him in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm in an evil day as Elijah did. He was willing even to go to the leaders and say that what they were doing was wrong, that worshiping false gods, teaching a false way of salvation and manifest falsehoods was evil. Let us, O Lord, be at least as brave as he was. Let us speak truth. Let us strive, O Lord, that your will might be done here on earth as it is in heaven. May the name of Jesus Christ be hallowed and may every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' hope.